0: I do ask, Father, for a blessing on our teaching tonight, for clarity in what I would say, Father, for accuracy in how it represents the text, for urgency, Father, and how it impacts us individually that we would hear things tonight that might concern ourselves or help us concern ourselves with our own walk and how we live according to the Word. And most of all, Father, I just pray for grace in our lives and in our interactions or relationships with others, Father, let us see the the grace you've given to David as uh, evidence, Father, of what you offer to us in Christ and of what we must, by necessity, return to others uh, as we have interaction with them. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us a heart that can forgive as easily as we can remember and um, can can concern ourselves, Father, with, with representing you as much as we concern ourselves with representing our own interests. And if we do these things, Father, I know you'll be pleased. I pray you give us the heart to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we move into the second chapter of the three-part account of David's spiritual growth. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember I said that chapters 24, 25, and 26 form their own little three-part story centered on how God took David, his heart, and advanced it forward, grew it spiritually, so that he'd be prepared to take on the the duties of king that he's about to receive at the end of Saul's life. In chapter 24, this three-part story began. David had the opportunity, if you remember, in the cave to kill Saul, but he refrained from doing so. Nonetheless, he still committed a sin against the Lord's anointed because he cut off the hem of Saul's robe. Afterward, he felt immediately the conviction of the spirit and as a result, he repented, and then he confessed his sin to his men, then to Saul as well. And in the course of all of that, he pledged that he would protect Saul, protect Saul's honor, his family, and so on. All that transpired in 24. But the fact that David failed in what he did, it was a failure because it indicated David was thinking he could solve these problems with his own hand rather than rely on the Lord to defend him. And it showed the same kind of pride that was at the beginning of Saul's own fall. And God wants to deal with this in David's heart early So the Lord is going to teach David about depending on the Lord rather than taking matters into his own hands And he does that starting now in chapter 25 So chapter 24 is the first act it sets up the problem Chapter 25 is where we see the problem addressed Because the Lord loves David because the Lord has great plans for him The Lord is going to place David in a set of circumstances in this chapter That test his heart and develop David's trust in the Lord What he's going to do is he's going to expose David's weakness, this tendency of David to take matters into his own hands, much like Saul does. And then the Lord is going to use a very unlikely hero to accomplish this work in David's heart. That's the backdrop of chapter 25. So let's now move into the second act of this three-act play, beginning in verse 1. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. I'm going to pause there because this sets up the whole chapter in a way. Act two begins with the death of Samuel. Now, this book and its sequel, second Samuel, are named after Samuel. So naturally, at this point, you're going to ask yourself, who's writing the book at this point? Who finishes it and who gets the second one? Right. Well, the general opinion views Samuel as the author of at least chapters one through 24. But then other writers obviously had to complete the rest of the books. And the Jewish Talmud Credits two prophets, Nathan and Gad, who were contemporaries of David, as the ones who finished 1st and 2nd Samuel, which if that were true, by the way, that would mean that Gad does actually have a book in the Bible after all. It's 2nd Samuel. In any event, the Lord raised up Samuel in his life from the time he was a boy serving in the tabernacle and so on, expressly to bless Israel all the days of his life. That's what we heard early in this book. Considering the evil behavior that Eli, Samuel's predecessor, and now Saul, have been demonstrating, it's fair to say that Samuel was probably the only bright spot among all leaders in Israel during his lifetime. Were it not for Samuel, the nation would have been without any godly leadership whatsoever. But now the guy's gone, so where's that godly leadership going to come from? And that's where this verse fits into this three-part narrative. It sets up the imperative that there must be someone who is going to step into the shoes of Samuel and continue this plan of godly leadership to a people of God who desperately need it. Remember, the book of 1 Samuel comes on the heels of judges, which itself is a 300-year period of a lot of very bad, ineffective rulers. So we see this bright spot in Samuel come on the scene and now gone, and so it opens the obvious question of what next? Obviously, we know David is to be that next man to serve God in this way for the sake of Israel. And that's why Samuel's death features prominently in the text at this point. It's emphasizing to us, now is the time. If there was ever a time in David's life he was going to step up and take the mantle of leadership in godliness, it has to be now because there is no one else to carry it forward in Israel. But he still has something to learn before he's ready to assume that responsibility. Hence the urgency of chapter 25. The timing of Samuel's death also raises a little interesting possibility. Samuel ruled as Israel's only judge after Eli's death. So after Eli, you only have one judge left in the land, and that's Samuel. Samuel was Israel's judge for 12 years until Saul became king. And then after Saul became king, Samuel continued to judge Israel for another 18 years as the antagonist to Saul's evil reign. So you have 12, followed by... 18, that means Samuel was the righteous judge over Israel for 30 years, which is a number that indicates God's sovereignty. The three in there is God's calling card. So if God intended Samuel to rule for 30 years, then David was to assume the role of righteous leader in his place. Well, perhaps the Lord is showing us what could have been for Israel. That is to say, had the nation not demanded a king prematurely, Perhaps the Lord would have raised up David to be king now at this point, following 30 years of Samuel having the authority in the nation, that the nation would have moved directly from Eli to Samuel to David without Saul being in the middle of it had they not demanded it prematurely. Instead, they brought Saul into power, which has the effect of delaying David's arrival into power and creating great suffering for the people in the meantime. Perhaps this serves as a picture of Jesus' first and his second comings to earth. David... We know pictures of Jesus in Scripture. That's something that's said to us at different places. And when Jesus came to bring the kingdom to Israel the first time, he was rejected because the people had a different kind of king in mind. That rejection created a delay and a suffering for God's people in the day of Jesus. That is to say, Israel is now under judgment in a hardened state of heart because of their rejection of the Messiah. They've suffered a lot in the years since then because they rejected the first king. After a delay, though, the people of Israel finally received the Messiah they could have received the first time. seems to create a parallel where David could have immediately followed Samuel as opposed to the way it did turn out where there was a delay in getting David. They had to deal with Saul in the meantime, a time of suffering for Israel. So here's David retreating, we're told in verse 1, into the Sinai, into a desert called Paran. And while he's there, you have to imagine he's depressed, he's worried. The one guy who he knew could check Saul's power is now gone. And David's on the run, and his life is difficult. At this point, maybe a low point in his life, things begin to look up. Verse 2. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. We're introduced here to a man named Nabal, living in Mahan. He possesses a large sheep herding business. He lives near Carmel. Now, this is not the same Carmel of 1 Kings 18. That's way north. This is Carmel and Meon are only about 15 miles due west of Engedi. So En is down near the Dead Sea. And these are uh, two towns right up in the hill country, just up out of the river valley of the Dead Sea. So remember, Engedi is where David's been holding out now for some time. So this man and his sheep herding operation are very far, just a, maybe an hour's walk, a couple hour walk west of David. Nabal's name means fool, and it's a prophetic reflection of his character. Scripture defines a fool as someone who does not give regard to God. That's the technical definition of a fool, someone who does not give regard to God. Despite his foolishness, he's very rich, and he possesses huge flocks of sheep, And goats, and the reason for his success is actually explained in that parenthetical. It's because of his heritage. He's a Calebite. That means he descended from Caleb. Remember Caleb and Joshua? So Caleb, along with Joshua, were the faithful members of the scouting party of Israel that first entered into the promised land. Because they were faithful, in contrast to the other spies who were not, they were blessed a provision of land that was given to them when they entered into the land. Moses blessed Caleb with a large tract of land near Hebron. And his descendants were likewise blessed with the riches of that land. And here you see Nabal just inheriting the richness of that land. The writer says Nabal had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, besides indicating the size of his wealth, which is substantial, the number of his sheep there is important for another reason. If you look back to the beginning of our three-part story again, in chapter 24, you find that Saul was pursuing David in En-Gedi. And how many men did Saul bring with him? 3,000. At that time, David failed the test that the Lord put in front of him, this test of obedience, because he took matters into his own hands in trying to defend himself against Saul by cutting the robe and so on. And we said last time that because he failed that test, he's going to take it again. When you fail a test with God, you get to take the test again. Because the whole point of the test is to grow you, and you didn't grow the first time, we'll try it again. All right, now jump forward with me for a moment. In chapter 26, which is the third act of this play, which we'll get to next time, David will get a second opportunity to pass the same kind of test He'll be put in a very similar set of circumstances a chance to attack Saul from behind without Saul knowing he's even there and all the rest And in that third part of the story, you see Saul once again seeking David's life That's how they come together again. And once again, how many men do you think Saul will have with him in chapter 26? Couldn't guess right three thousand men so between these three Chapters you have three thousand featuring prominently in each one three thousand men three thousand men at the end and then between them You have nabal with three thousand sheep So each chapter has the number three thousand what the author wants you and I to understand is that the events of these three chapters are Connected one with another and in the middle of these three you have the characters completely changed no Saul anymore Now it's about this interesting family that just appears out of nowhere in the story and in that sense nabal becomes a proxy for Saul. In fact, you're going to see numerous narrative analogies in this story compared to the story of David and Saul. These connections are there to help us recognize that the Lord is using this experience to teach David concerning the other two. The bad example that started it all and the good one that he will end with when he learns how to pass the test. What explains his change from the bad to the good? It's what he experiences in this middle chapter that teaches him. And so we need to start thinking about the chapter in that way as we study through it. And I'll point out some of those narrative analogies as we go through. Go back to the characters. Nabal, we talked about his wife, Abigail, is a striking contrast to her husband. She is beautiful and intelligent. We don't hear much about his appearance, but I'm assuming there's a contrast there as well. And her husband is the opposite of her in other characteristics. She is kind and generous and godly, whereas Nabal is harsh and foolish and ungodly and without a concern for the will or presence of God. And even their names are a contrast because Abigail's name means my father, as in my father in heaven, rejoicing, whereas his name is fool, which means I have no regard for God. The feeling was mutual, I'm sure. So Nabal is Saul's counterpart in this story. Therefore, who is Abigail's counterpart to, do you think? David. So she's David's counterpart in the analogy. So the way she interacts with her husband will become a lesson to David in how he should be interacting with Saul. She is an example of how a godly servant of God responds to an ungodly superior. David failed this challenge in chapter 24. Now he has to learn how to pass it before we get to chapter 26. So after Samuel's death, David hears Nabal is shearing his sheep. Now, why is that newsworthy information? It's newsworthy in part because of Nabal's wealth, but also because of his geographical connection to David. Anyone who owns 4,000 grazing animals is like the Bill Gates of his day. So. A man with that many animals would have needed a tremendous range of territory on which to graze that many animals in an arid landscape like the one he lives in, just to keep them alive, which means that his men, his shepherds, would have taken his sheep all over the place to get them the nourishment they needed. Carmel, we already learned, is only 15 miles west of En And we know, therefore, that Nabal's shepherds would have crossed paths with David's men as they were guarding their encampment there in En Therefore, David would have been aware of that work, and they would have known he was a rich man, obviously. And so when David hears that Nabal has reached the point in the year where you shear the sheep, he takes note. He believes this is his opportunity to gain some much-needed relief for him and his men. Shearing was the point in the year when a sheep herding business brought in all the sheep into pens and took the wool, shaved the wool off the animals, It took a number of days, even weeks, depending on the size of the herd, to finish this process. And as a result, it was a time of great celebration because this is the moment you cashed in your crop. This is when the guy's going to make all his money for the year, is in the sale of all of this wool. So after each day of shearing, the laborers who are doing all the work would share in the master's reward each evening in the form of a great feast there'd be great food and drink every night and it was a way of keeping their spirits up as they did all that labor but it was also a payment to them they knew that the boss was about to come into a whole bunch of money and he was spreading it around to make everybody else feel good at the same time and David knows this this is tradition this is how it's done everywhere he believes that he and his men have a right to share in that celebration with the other laborers. And He sends messengers to Nabal to explain why he believes that he has entered into the right to join the feast. And you read that next in verse 5. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them. Nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. So David says, guys, I want you to go to Nabal, Here's my message. Tell them, first of all, greet them in my name. Now that's a sign of respect. And recognition, but it also communicates to Nabal that they're not strangers, but rather they are associated, at least in some sense. Notice in verse 8, David refers to himself as Nabal's son. That's an indication that David is placing himself in a position of service or submission to Nabal. But again, it's also a comparison to Saul, remember? Saul called David my son. Alright? So David is looking at this man as if he were Saul again in that sense. There's a little indication there secondly david tells his men i want you to declare a blessing upon this man upon his house upon all that he possesses and in other words make sure he knows we're not his enemy we come in peace we come in friendship we believe that he should prosper we want to strengthen him we're not competitors we're not enemies we're friends and then he says tell him i've heard that he's shearing and remind him of everything we did to support his men in their grazing and he says specifically as naval shepherds went Through the wilderness, leading their flock, David's men first protected them. In other words, David's men showed Nabal's shepherds respect, allowed them to graze, didn't threaten them. But more than that, he says, they didn't lose anything. Now, what he's saying is they never lost a single sheep while they were working in the area that David's men covered. And that is an amazing thing for David to say. And I have to believe he meant it literally because he says, go ask your men, they'll tell you it's true. Because it's so remarkable that he would even suggest this is true. David is not saying, oh, we didn't steal any of your sheep. I mean, that's nothing. That wouldn't be cause for reward. I didn't violate the law, so reward me. In fact, that would be a threat of extortion, wouldn't it? It almost sounds like, pay me or something might happen to your sheep. No, he doesn't say that. He says, we prevented any loss of even a single sheep. Now, that means no wild animal took one of your sheep. No thieves took any of your sheep, which would have been normal. I mean, a sheep operation of this size would have normally seen a certain percent of loss. All right. Just inevitably. Under normal circumstances, you'd have a few loss every year. David says, our men were so effective acting as your personal protection army that when your sheep grazed, you didn't lose anything. What he's saying is, we worked for you, and I'm here to claim my payment, my compensation, not charity. And if anyone's ever read this to you as if Dave was asking for a handout, flip that totally around. He's expecting to be paid for his men's service in protecting the flock. And therefore, by the way, that would mean Nabal is obligated by honor to do the right thing here in response to David's request. This is not a man who's being asked to just give if he'd like. He's being asked to pay up which honor would require. He's making a very specific demand. And that demand is largely centered around participating in the feast, though he says, give me whatever you think my work was worth. I, I think he was leaving it to Nabal to do the right thing. When Nabal gets this very reasonable request, He behaves in a very unreasonable way. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? I will pause. David's men approached him. Of course, they give the request and they expect him to give the proper answer and he surprises them with a very dishonorable answer first he rebuffs david's attempt to recognize an existing relationship he says who is david he is saying on what basis do i have to trust david to have any relationship or to owe anything to david then he adds furthermore who is the son of jesse now why is he saying that he's emphasizing now something different he's going a step further and he's questioning david's right to have even the throne of israel Because everyone knows it was the son of Jesse who was anointed by Samuel. At this point, everyone knows that David is the king in waiting. And that is the source of the conflict. And it's until that conflict is resolved, everyone's going to wait and see how it plays out. Nabal has the gall to suggest that David's claim to the throne is not legitimate. Who is this son of Jesse? And therefore... The conflict that has arisen out of it is merely David seeking to rise up against his master and to usurp the authority of his master as if he is some kind of selfishly motivated rebel as opposed to someone who's being persecuted because he has been anointed and the existing guy doesn't like it. You see, he's twisted the whole story around. It's to justify what he's going to do next, of course, which is to selfishly give nothing to David or his men. In fact, he sort of suggests that David is seeking charity. Am I supposed to just give my hard-earned stuff to whoever comes along and asks for it? Instead of looking at it from the perspective that you've earned it, you're the future king, and as God's anointed, I'm obligated to do the right thing by anyone, if not more so you. Now, verse 12. So David's young men retraced their way and went back. They came and told him, that is David, according to all these words david said to his men each of you gird on his sword so each man girded on his sword and david also girded on his sword and about 400 men went up behind david while 200 stayed with the baggage so david responds to nabal's rebuff by preparing to defend his honor and that's what he's doing here it's a defense of honor and the defense of his men's honor and he's going to do it by killing nabal and all his household that's his solution Now, on the one hand, his response is not surprising given the the culture and the expectations of the day. When a man was dishonored in this way, he would typically be expected to avenge his honor. Death was not an uncommon penalty for this. The culture would likely have let this kind of a judgment stand. On the other hand... God has made it clear to David that he is not to resist evil in his own power. Instead, through the lessons he's been teaching him with Saul, he's supposed to depend on the Lord for vengeance. That's the overriding lesson of these three chapters. Okay, Yes, people will wrong you. Yes, you will want to do something about it. No, you're God's anointed. Let me take care of your problem. That's the message David's supposed to get. Okay, He made the mistake of assaulting Saul in the cave. Now, here again, what's he preparing to do? It's even worse, because he's not going after Saul. He's going after a foolish man. Once again, though, preparing to take matters in his own hand. Now, not cutting hems, cutting heads. So he begins to travel the 15 miles or so back to Nabal that very night. Now, that tells you a little bit right there about his pride and his anger, doesn't it? He's not even going to let his head cool. So he runs after this guy. Doesn't even pause long enough to seek the Lord's counsel. Another break from the pattern we've noticed with David. Isn't this the guy that every time something came along, he'd stop and pray about it? Now, no prayer. I'm just going to run after this guy he wasn't the only one David wasn't the only one to be shocked by Nabal's answer though Nabal's shepherds learn of what Nabal had said to David's men and so they are seriously concerned verse 14 one of the young men told Abigail Nabal's wife saying behold David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master and he scorned them yet the men were very good to us and we were not insulted nor did we miss anything so long as we went about with them while we were in their fields they were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So Nabal's shepherds rush to Abigail. Now they're doing this entirely out of self-preservation. Right? When we hear all the household's going to die, these are the household. Okay? These are the guys who are in trouble. And they say to themselves at the end, well, we're talking to you because we can't talk to him. So they're going to the only other person in the household they think they can get to. And they confirm for us that there was good reason for them to expect an attack from David. Do you notice that? They know culturally that they're likely to die. That's how expected David's response was. So I, I want to be careful about just assuming too much about david here just running off to do the wrong thing it's wrong not because it's automatically wrong culturally it was actually acceptable culturally it's wrong because god has said he shouldn't do it that god has a different path for him in the way he responds to these kinds of things so notice in verse 16 they report just what we said earlier david's men took turns guarding the flock they were like a wall nothing got through And that means they were working. They deserve pay. Notice also in verse 17, though, they say evil is preparing an attack. I like the way they do this because in the inspiration of the spirit, this is recorded as the word evil, which would tell us they know David's revenge is coming. But they also are commenting, whether intentionally or otherwise, that David's actions were evil if they were allowed to play out. David's good actions in the one case are about to be followed by bad actions. In this case, he was good to help the shepherds. But he's about to be doing evil if he prosecutes this attack. Seven times, by the way, in this chapter, the words good and evil are paired in this sort of way in different moments throughout the chapter, which indicates that the contrast of doing good versus doing evil is the focus of this chapter. What is doing good require versus what is doing evil require? David's been in the evil camp a little too much. God's trying to show him how to get out of that and into the good column. So after hearing the report, Abigail, who is clearly the heroine of the chapter, springs into action to save her husband. And this is a story many have studied. I I think maybe particularly women have heard this uh, before, although it does raise some interesting questions, which we'll look at. Verse 18. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred cluster of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. It came about, as she was riding on her donkey, and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain, that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her, so she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave as much as one man of any who belong to him. So let's stop there for a minute. She, she's grabbed all this stuff, 200 loaves of bread, jugs of wine, large quantities of grain, raisins, cakes, figs, all this stuff, right? Where did you get all this at the drop of a hat? The feast, the, the feast. exactly right. The, the nature of what was going on at the time was such that they had to have these large quantities of all this food ready to go every night. It's like a big operation, like a ranch operation to feed all those men who were doing all that shearing every night. So all she's doing is bringing David exactly what they requested, effectively. Though she isn't bringing enough, really, for all the David's men. I suspect they would have expected more than this. But it's the most that one woman can put on a few donkeys and drag out into the desert in the middle of the night. You want to get a sense of this woman's bravery. Just imagine for a minute what she's doing. This is a solitary woman riding a donkey and pulling maybe one or two more in the middle of the night, in the desert, alone, with a bunch of valuable goods, headed out to approach an army of bloodthirsty men who are coming expressly to kill her household. This is just immense courage. She's placing herself entirely at David's mercy. In fact, I would say there was at least as much an equal chance that she was going to be killed or, or worse on this expedition than any good, any good could have come out of it, from her point of view, in other words. she so had no an expectation of what was going to happen. So why doesn't she send a servant in her place? I would have loved to have seen the expression on their faces, but you know, if she had said to them, you know what, you're right, this is, this is something we need to do with something about. Why don't you go get a bunch of stuff on a donkey and go see David for us? Well, the reason is because she would likely have been condemning that servant to death, one way or the other. Because if David didn't kill him, Nabal would have killed him. Because his own servants would have been giving away his own possessions without his authority. But the wife, now the wife has authority. The wife has authority in the house to give things away. So she's the, literally the only one who could survive this account. And that's assuming that David didn't kill her. But Nabal couldn't have killed her over this. So she has to do it. Before she meets David, the writer shows us what was in David's heart so that you understand just what was at risk in meeting David. He's fuming. He says, you, know, you can hear the narrative going over and over in his head as he's, as he's walking at night, right? It's like that guy that's so mad he's talking to himself. Nabal, I go show that guy when I get there. And he declares at the very end there that should he fail to kill every male in Nabal's house, then may the Lord complete the task for him. David is suggesting he is, in his own mind, doing the Lord's work as he vanquishes Nabal's household. He's trying to complete the task, but if I don't, God will just finish it for me, because this is what God wants. He thinks he's speaking prophetically, but of course, obviously, he's not. He's acting in the flesh. He's assuming God's on his side. In fact, he sounds a little bit like Saul, thinking that what he wanted was automatically what God wanted, which is what Saul's been doing this whole time. This entire situation is very similar to the one David himself has been facing from the other side. David worked hard in support of Saul, did he not? He was loyal, was he not? He defended Saul's army. He respected Saul's authority. He simply executed the orders that Saul gave him, and all he expected was the common respect the king would have for a loyal servant. What did Saul do instead? Saul was evil, and he was unjust against David, gave David nothing that David deserved. just like Nabal is doing now. And what did God tell David he is to do? What has David been teaching his own men? Respect the anointed of God. He's been running from Saul rather than engaging with Saul. Clearly, David didn't learn the lesson that the Lord was trying to teach him in that process because he's supposed to rely on the Lord to protect and defend him. And yet here he is again doing exactly the same thing, only worse. So... This conflict with Nabal becomes an opportunity for the Lord to teach David the correct way you're supposed to respond to those who oppose you. But he chooses this humbling hero to make the point. Nothing makes the point better to someone how they should have acted when someone weaker than them does better than them. And if, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever seen your children do something better than you did under the same circumstances, you're immediately convicted by the fact that you should have known better than they did, and yet they showed you what you should have done. Like when your kid's in the back seat saying, Daddy, You're speeding. Sit down and be quiet. I know what I'm doing. All right, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. <laughs> Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this guilt which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoint you ruler. Over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So you had to get this all out in one breath because she's not sure she's going to get a second one in front of him, right? So as Abigail approaches David, notice her posture. She bows immediately, places herself in front of him on the ground, right at his feet. You know, if he wanted to cut off her head, Nothing's going to stop him at that point. And, and she knows that. She's t- putting herself at his mercy. And then, then notice the next thing she does. She places all the blame on herself. Now, what she is not doing is suggesting that she's responsible. Because David knows she has nothing to do with it. That's not going to fly anyway. She's, what she's doing here, she's asking David to transfer her husband's blame upon her. She says, had she known David's men had come, well, she would have stopped, you know, stepped in earlier. She'd have done something to try to make it right. Now what she's saying is I'm doing what I can now in light of when I learned about it to make things right. Because my husband, she says, ruined the situation. Do you see a picture forming in her behavior here? Abigail forms a distant picture of Christ in her behavior. She's riding a donkey, which of course is what Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem. She's giving herself up freely to her enemies, just as Jesus gave himself up freely to the Romans. She's innocent. Nevertheless, she assumes the blame for the guilty party, just as Jesus took our sin for us she offers to pay for the sins of the foolish that is to those who do not acknowledge god so she's picturing christ's propitiation for the believer who takes on that propitiation so abigail asks david to pay no attention to her husband whom she calls worthless and worthy of his name obviously she knows her husband pretty well she knows what he's capable of she testifies to david essentially well this behavior this is uh, sort of typical for him he does this a lot she says you know that's why he has his name after all fool didn't come by accident what she's saying in a sense is he couldn't help himself now that's not to say he's not to blame it's to say he's acting in his nature this is who he is and he does these sorts of stupid things would you overlook his mistake perhaps at this point you might begin to wonder is abigail crossing a line of behavior regarding her husband i mean could a godly wife really say such things about her husband and still be honoring him you know shouldn't she be more supportive of her husband or at the very least shouldn't she just refrain from saying anything and be silent about him publicly as opposed to just sort of saying yeah he's a fool in, in the way that she's doing right and in fact what about her decision to bring the food to David isn't that disobeying her husband's wishes because he didn't want to give the food well if you focus only on the details I just described then you're going to draw the wrong conclusion about her actions and therefore you're going to judge her unfairly because you have to consider the entire set of circumstances she's facing and take note of what she desires out of this situation if you're going to understand how she's honoring her husband in genesis chapter two the bible says that a wife is to be the helper of the husband and that term means one who is there to honor support and strengthen the husband it's that way because they're one flesh so in other words The wife is only doing what would be self-beneficial when she honors her husband, because as one flesh, what's good for him is good for her, and vice versa. Under these circumstances, what does preserving her husband's honor look like? Or another way to say it is, what is the best way she can honor her husband under these circumstances? And, And I'll use an analogy to help you understand. I want you to imagine a situation where a robber breaks into your home at night, ties up your husband, and points a gun to his head. And the robber demands your husband give him keys to the new sports car that your husband has recently purchased. It's parked out front. But your husband stubbornly refuses to tell the thief where the keys are. Now, you know where the keys are kept. And you know your foolish husband is about to die if you don't act quickly to save him from himself. So what do you do? What's the best way to honor your husband under those circumstances? Now, some wives might reply, I would keep quiet, collect the life insurance, and buy another sports car. But the most honoring thing you would do under these circumstances is to act in your husband's best interest by giving up the keys to save his life, right? You haven't directly disobeyed his instructions. What you are doing, though, is you are acting to compensate for his foolishness, which is in keeping with your role as a helper. And that's what Abigail is doing here. Abigail's first concern has to be saving his life. Because if she preserves his honor publicly at the expense of his physical life, to what benefit would that have been? If she doesn't take this extreme course of action, he's dead, she's likely dead, the household's gone. That is not a measure of honor to her husband. Furthermore, she isn't violating any specific order that we know of in Scripture. Her husband never forbids her from doing what she's doing. In fact, she doesn't even tell him that she's going to do these things, which I think is obviously a strategic move on her part because she knows he would try to stop her. And now that's not deception, by the way. There's nothing, again, in which what she's doing here is running counter to something he has expressly said that she can't do. Her knowledge of her husband has told her, I have to do this a certain way if I'm going to be able to get it done. Because, again, it's his own foolishness that would prevent it. But her shrewdness is acting in compensation for her husband's foolishness. And so many wives know exactly what that looks like. That when the man is doing the wrong thing, you don't disobey or dishonor him by countering it or contradicting it, but you can compensate for it. It's a fine line. The heart has to judge which side of the line you're on. As she appeals at david's mercy she is wisely seeking to support her husband by maintaining his life and to yet do it in a way that is honoring and as humble as she can in fact notice what she appeals to in the conversation she appeals to david's relationship to the lord as the argument for why he should listen to her in fact throughout this whole speech she frequently refers to david's relationship with the lord she acknowledges, the Lord anointed David as future king. She affirms, the Lord's going to defend you. He's going to put you into power one day. And then wisely, she asks David, I want you to consider how you're going to feel once you become king and you reflect back on the day that you did this unjust act and you, you took this revenge. How are you going to feel when you remember this wrong thing you did in taking the lives of, these, of this household because of one man's foolishness? Do you want that to stain your record as king, in other words? So she appeals to him in that perspective. And that's especially true because David already knows the Lord has said he will defend. And she mentions that. The Lord's going to defend you against all your enemies. So won't you be ashamed that you took such an unreasonable action when you had the Lord already ready to defend you? It's easy to see the Lord speaking through Abigail to David's heart, isn't it? It's like she's just a puppet at this point. She skillfully speaks to David to his conscience by pointing him back to the relationship he has with the Lord. And that's what the Lord wanted David to remember. In chapter 24, David took a step of revenge in defense of himself against another foolish man, Saul. Here he is ready to do the same thing again. So what does the Lord do? He sends David a woman, someone of low station, relatively, to speak to someone of high station, the future anointed king, to make the point all the more that if she knows better what to do, why don't you? You should have known it already. And it stops David from sinning. And lastly, you notice she knew her audience well, because in verse 29, she uses a very interesting metaphor, one that we would not have picked up on necessarily ourselves, but it's, it's very appealing to shepherds. Shepherds, when they went out into the field with their flocks, they carried two bundles traditionally with them, two wrapped bundles that they, that they carried. One bundle held the food that they were going to eat while they were out in the field. They might be out in the field for days on end, so they would have to carry a supply of food in one bundle. It was essentially their bundle of life. It's what kept them alive when they were out. The second bundle they had was full of stones because when they had to protect the sheep against thieves or or animals, they had their sling and they had to have stones and you couldn't always be sure there'd be one nearby. So it was your ammunition for fending off threats. She uses these bundles as analogies. She says, David's life is assured because he's bound up with the Lord. So he's in the bundle with the food, so to speak, with the Lord, but his enemies are going to be condemned because they're like stones to be flung away by the sling. Very artful. So anyway, David hears Abigail. His heart is touched. Verses 32 through 35. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who has kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left of Nabal until morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she brought him and said to her, go to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. So I love what David does here. And there's a really nice pattern that we want to take note of for our own lives in what David does. First, David recognizes Abigail was sent by the Lord for his sake. All right, friends, this is the first step in recognizing the discipline of the Lord when it comes into your own life. When the Lord disciplines his children, the Bible says he does so for our Good And and that discipline can come a lot of ways, but it usually comes through other people. That's been my experience. A word from someone, a caution from someone, hurt feelings being reflected from someone. You see in someone else's life the outworking of your sin. And maybe they are able to express it back to you in a helpful way. And quite often for married couples, this comes through a spouse. Other times, though, it can come through children, friends, people in the church, and even at times a stranger like Abigail in this case. Now, obviously, not every critique you're going to receive from someone is from the Lord or even correct. But when someone offers a criticism or they offer a suggestion or maybe they just show what righteousness looks like in front of you, you'll know in your heart when that's something that the Lord is at work in doing. You'll know by the feeling of conviction in your heart this is more than just someone's unfair commentary or piousness in my presence. This is something God wanted me to see or hear. But what happens next will determine whether you learn the lesson or not. Do you react defensively? Do you make excuses? Do you run away? Well, then if you do that, you miss the chance to recognize that the Lord just sent a messenger to correct your heart, and you didn't get the benefit of the correction. Now, for his part, what does David do? He immediately says this woman is from the Lord with the heart of god he receives her as from the lord now this is not required that abigail knew that that's what her role was right i'm not saying she had that insight necessarily it was david's insight david knew this message could not have come from some random woman who wants to save her foolish husband i see the connection you're reminding me of something that just happened not long ago in engedi and the whole thing begins to line up that's his recognition he says this is from the lord now the next thing he does notice he blesses abigail for her discernment and her bravery Because she stepped into a dangerous situation to stop David from sinning. What he's doing in that case is he is receiving the discipline of the Lord, but he's going beyond that. He's blessing the person who acted obediently to deliver the message. What a refreshing thing to do. Abigail took this step of faith in her own walk to serve the Lord in what God had to do in David's life. So she was essentially a servant to God in supporting David. But ironically, she had to do it by putting herself in a position where David could harm her. And isn't that always the case when you step out to help somebody who needs to hear correction? You put yourself in jeopardy to their ire, whatever that might be. Why was she in this position? Why was she having to ride around at night on donkeys, putting her life at risk? Because of David's sin. David's mistake put her in jeopardy. David's rage, his prospect here of going and killing everyone, put her in a position to have to take this risk. So when David heard the words she spoke, felt the conviction, recognized it was from God, and... Even though he didn't express it, I imagine he was thinking, I'm sorry I put you through this. And as a result, he says, you're blessed. You're blessed in what you've done. You're blessed for your obedience. You're blessed. This is literally the opposite of shooting the messenger. This is loving the messenger because you recognize you needed the message and it's from God, so you receive it as from God. And you bless the person who was useful to God in that way. Next time someone tries to rescue you from yourself, recognize they are working on your behalf. And if you believe it's from God, then return the blessing. They may not even know the Lord's been working through them. So encourage their heart by acknowledging how they were obedient, how they served the Lord's purpose in your life, how they took some risk, how they stepped into a difficult situation and had to deal with the potential that you were going to cut their head off while they bowed at your feet. David tells Abigail, had you not obeyed the Lord, surely terrible things would have happened to your household. And I would have been the one to cause it. And I would have been far off worse as a result of it. So David agreed to her request and he said he wouldn't attack Nabal. But what of David's honor in all of this? You know, he's been dishonored by Nabal. And this whole act he was about to take was intended to return his honor. But now he's given up on that plan. Where does that leave his honor? Verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk so she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light but in the morning when the wine had gone out of nabal his wife told him these things and his heart died within him so he became as a stone about 10 days later the lord struck nabal and he died so abigail returns and fittingly she finds her husband the fool drunk that night he was completely unaware of what was coming his way he and his men were like sitting ducks that evening And it was the faithful wife that saved him. And then Nabal reminds us again of of Saul and all of this. A man who lived in the flesh. He operated like he was invincible, like a king. He was sitting here like a king, as we hear Nabal described here. So the connection to Saul is back again, so we can see the contrast. And it took till morning. This was the first opportunity. Now, again, in defense of Abigail's honor, she reports exactly what she did. She holds nothing back. She did it the first opportunity. It just happens to be the morning because the guy was drunk. And the writer actually makes a pun in Hebrew in verse 37, using Nabal's name. The Hebrew word for wine sack, the thing you held wine with, is Nebel. So his name is Nebel, N-A-B-A-L, N-E-B-E-L is the name for a something that holds wine. So the writer, using a pun, says Nabal, the wine sack, ran out of wine. You see, an empty wine sack is what? Worthless. So was Nabal when he was sober. Notice Abigail didn't deceive Nabal at any point. She told him the whole story once the emergency was over. And at this point, we were told the heart of Nabal went dead. Now, what it means euphemistically is he lost all courage when he realized how close he had come to death. He was so paralyzed by his fear. But it also serves as a picture of Saul becoming hard-hearted as the sin of his life took over him. Finally, the Lord brings the vengeance David deserves. He defends David's honor because why? Because David refrained from acting on his own behalf. Notice the death came about 10 days later anybody here take the ruth study you may remember that phrase about 10 days it means not exactly 10 if you say about 10 you typically mean something less than but not quite 10 so it's something let's say between 9 and 10 if it was 9 he would have said 9 the number 9 means judgment in scripture the number 10 means testimony so nabal's death was a judgment of god in defense of david's honor and the entire episode of nabal's life then is a testimony not only of his own wickedness but also of the faithfulness of Abigail and the repentance of David's heart. So that's where we end in this chapter. Next week, when we come back, chapter 26, we'll see how now a revitalized David, a repentant David, comes to the same set of circumstances he saw saw in chapter 24, but what does he do differently now because of the faithfulness of uh, Abigail and what she did for him. That's next week. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray just briefly, Father, that you would take what we've learned in David's life and in the story of David and Abigail, and you would remind us that um, you often step into our life to discipline us and speak to us concerning our lives, and we are uh, called in Scripture to accept those uh, moments of discipline uh, joyfully, Father, knowing that they bring about a peaceful fruit of righteousness in our life. Thank you, Father, for the reminder that you communicate that discipline to us quite often through those who know us best but even through strangers from time to time. The policeman who gives us a ticket on the side of the road. Um, The lady or man who chastises us for cutting them off in traffic after we park. Those moments, Father, that stick in our brain and we think to ourselves, they're right, I did do that. We know that's from you sometimes, Father, so that we'll grow different and better and think more clearly about how to represent you to a world that needs to know you. Don't let us shoot any messengers, Father. Give us a heart that wants to receive criticism so that we can hear less of it in the future and so that we can please you all the days of our life. We thank you, Father, for that reminder. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.